All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. We are pressing on in our study of church history this afternoon. Uh, the last few months, we've been, uh, been focusing mainly on events that have been occurring in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, looking at the Council of Nicaea, men like Athanasius, uh, Basil of Caesarea, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, and the Second Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon, not Chalcedon, uh, Con Constantinople, that's the Second Ecumenical Council. Well, today we're going to shift our attention to the west, to the city of Milan, and we're going to look at uh, a pivotal figure in church history, a man named Ambrose. Before we get there, we're going to open up with a reading of Scripture. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew, hold on a second, I forgot the reference. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 15. Matthew chapter 22. And we'll begin reading at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, that is, Jesus, and his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Amen. All right, and as is our custom, we like to open up our time together uh, with a prayer that is taken from church history. And this, of course, is taken from the writings of St. Ambrose. And so I invite you to turn with me in prayer with our brother as we, we hear his words and pray along with him. Heavenly Father, I need to confess the prophet Isaiah's confession, which he makes before declaring the word of the Lord. Woe to me, he cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If Isaiah said, Woe to me, when he looked upon you, Lord, what do I say of myself? How can I speak of things I fear? I wish the seraphim would bring a burning coal from the celestial altar, take it in the tongs of the two testaments, and with that fire purge my unclean lips. But while the seraph came down in a vision to Isaiah, you, O Lord, have revealed the mystery and come to us in flesh. You, not by any deputy, nor by any messenger, but you yourself cleanse my conscience from my secret sins. 
Then I too, once unclean, but now by your mercy made clean through faith, may sing in the words of David, I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. When I sing praise to you, my lips will shout for joy, along with my soul, which you have redeemed. Amen. All right. Long before there were Super Bowls and World Cups, the ancient world had chariot races. And in the spring of 390, uh, just before a major race in the city of Thessalonica, the city's star player, uh, star athlete, was arrested on charges of sexual assault. The Thessalonians demanded the release of their MVP. And when the garrison commander refused, a riot broke out. In the process, the commander was captured by the mob and lynched. Men and their sports. Well, word came to Emperor Theodosius, and hopefully you remember Theodosius from last time. Uh, He is the the great defender of Trinitarian orthodoxy. Uh, He had issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which uh, outlawed Arianism, and he also is responsible for convening the Second Ecumenical Council at Constantinople in 381. That uh, Theodosius. When he heard what had transpired in Thessalonica, he gave in to the mob's demands. The Thessalonian star player was released, and the fans flocked to the Hippodrome and mass for the big match. No one blinked an eye that there was a larger-than-usual police presence at the games that day. After all, the city had just erupted in violence. It made sense that you would have a larger-than-usual police force present. Well, as the game got underway, the doors to the stadium are bolted shut. A signal rang out at which the soldiers drew their weapons and marched on the crowds. After three terrifying hours in the ensuing massacre and stampede, 7,000 men women, and children were killed in the city of Thessalonica, all by order of the most Christian emperor, Theodosius. Well, it didn't take long for the news of the emperor's vengeful justice to spread, and on a particular Sunday morning, as Theodosius made his way to church on the Lord's Day in the city of Milan, He was met at the door by Ambrose, the bishop of Milan. And with an outstretched arm, he said, Stand back. A man defiled by sin and with hands stained in blood unjustly shed is not worthy to enter within these sacred walls or to partake of the holy mysteries. Now remember, 
we're not even a hundred years removed from the time when the Roman emperors were issuing decrees calling for the massive persecution of Christians and their leaders, men like Ambrose. Well, now the emperor is excommunicated. And in an episode that would test the relationship between the church and the empire. Well, this wasn't the first time Bishop Ambrose came to blows with imperial power. And the legacy of these conflicts would have ripple effects down to our present day. But that was in the year 390. Ambrose was nearing the end of his ministry. You'll have to wait to the end to figure out what happened. Our story begins in the year 340. Not in the Italian city of Milan, but on the barbarian frontier in Gaul, in the city of Trier. Uh, you might remember, probably not, but that's okay. You might remember that uh, it was uh, at this same time that Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, the great defender of Nicaea, was living out his first exile in Trier. Well, Ambrose was born into a powerful military family. His father was governor over a vast territory under Constantine II. The story is told that as an infant, lying in a cradle out in the courtyard, a swarm of bees came and settled on Ambrose's face. And his family stood nearby and anxiously watched as the bees flew in and out of his mouth, paralyzed by fear that if they did anything uh, to startle the bees, it might result in the worst. But after a short time passed, they flew out. And when this happened, his father was shaken and he said, if this little baby lives, he will become something great. Well, Ambrose was untouched. And his family took it as a sign from heaven. They were devout Christians. That Ambrose was destined for greatness. Ambrose's father died while he was relatively young, leaving behind a widow and three kids. Ambrose being the youngest and a sister and a brother. The family relocated, relocated to Rome where Ambrose would receive the best education that money could afford. He was preparing for a career in law, and not long after finishing his education, Ambrose came to the attention of, the, of a praetorian prefect named Probus. Probus took Ambrose under his wing, appointing him as a legal advisor. And through the influence of Probus, though barely 30 years old, we're skipping ahead quite a bit here in his life, uh, 30 years old, Ambrose was elevated to the rank of consularis and was made governor of the province of Emilia Liguria. And the capital of this province was Milan. This is what brings Ambrose to the city of Milan. That was about the year 372. About two years into his tenure at Milan, in the year 374, the bishop of the city, an Arian named Auxentius dies. And a great debate erupts between the Arians and the Orthodox over who will be the next bishop. Of course, the Arians want an Arian, and the Orthodox want a Trinitarian. Well, the authorities are afraid of a riot breaking out. 
So in comes Ambrose, the governor. He stands up in the midst of the crowd, and addressing them, he calls for peace. It's then that a small voice calls out, Ambrose for bishop! Pretty soon, the whole crowd joins in, chanting, Ambrose for bishop! Ambrose for bishop! Ambrose is terrified. That is not why he showed up there that day, and he runs and hides. But eventually he's found, and the will of the majority is forced upon him. They even write a letter to the emperor uh, informing him of their choice. And so it's settled. Ambrose will become the bishop of Milan. There are only a few difficulties, of course, that needed to be overcome. Uh, Ambrose didn't have any theological training. He hadn't gone to seminary, as we would say. Uh, the Arians and the Orthodox, they're unsure about where he stands, what he's going to do. Um, usually, uh, in order to become the pastor of a church, uh, you need to be a Christian. Um, Ambrose was not. Um, <clears throat> To be fair, uh, he was raised in a Christian home. He was a catechumen, so he had expressed an interest in joining the church, but he hadn't been baptized yet. Um, see, he certainly had no formal theological training. So elevating Ambrose to be the pastor of the church in Milan was not only illegal, uh, in the sense that it violated the canons of the Council of Nicaea against ordaining neophytes. He wasn't even baptized. It was also unbiblical. Paul said to Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Nonetheless, God, in his providence, uh, he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He can use even the foolishness of his own people to the praise of his own glory. So Ambrose is baptized, and a week later, uh, he's ordained as the bishop of Milan on December 7th, 374. Uh, he sets aside funds to make sure that his sister, who was a consecrated virgin in the city of Rome, to make sure that she's taken care of. Um, after that, he gives away all of his money uh, to the poor. So the Arians, they supported Ambrose, probably because they assumed he would be similar in disposition as the Emperor Valentinian. And remember, Valentinian had taken a sort of a hands-off approach uh, to church controversies, and they thought perhaps Ambrose would be just as disinterested. Well, any hopes of neutrality quickly vanished as Ambrose assumes the episcopate, even in his baptism. He insisted on being baptized by a Trinitarian, not an Arian. He works well with the Arian clergy under him. He might not have had much of a choice in the matter. But he does labor to ensure that no more Arians would be appointed in the churches under his care, and even in the churches beyond his care. He made efforts to make sure that heresy was squashed. 
Now, before we go much further in our story about, the Ambro, about Ambrose's life, uh, we have to talk a little imperial history. And I know history is everybody's favorite subject, right? We all love ancient Roman history. But bear with me just a little while. Um, hopefully, I've, the, outline, the little outline I've given you in, in the handout will be, will be helpful in keeping some of the dates straight. Um, Emperor Valentinian I died in the year 375. His military commanders declared his son, Valentinian II, to be emperor. However, at the time, the child, Valentinian, was only four years old. It's a problem. So it was decided that his much older half-brother, and by much older I mean 16, uh, his older half-brother, Gratian, would reign as co-ruler. And of course, this is all in the West. Remember, uh, the Roman Empire is divided up administratively between East and West. This is in the West. In the East, the, the Arian emperor, Valens, reigns. But Valens would die in the year 378 at the Battle of Adrianople, fighting against the Goths. The responsibility of choosing Valens' successor falls to Gratian, and he appoints the general Theodosius. We've talked about Theodosius before. He is decidedly Nicene. Uh, together, Gratian, Valentinian II, and Theodosius issue the Edict of Thessalonica in the year 380, uh, not only establishing Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, but also outlawing, uh, outlawing Arianism, uh, defining it as heresy. Um, in response to this, a council is convened uh, in Italy in September of 381, so not long after the conclusion of the Council of Constantinople that we talked about last time. And at that council, Ambrose is present as the Bishop of Milan. The decisions of that council are communicated to the emperors by a letter uh, written by Ambrose. And the conclusion, Ambrose says this, We ask your clemency, knowing that the Arian assemblies are still being held in Sirmium, though these assemblies have been put under interdict, that you give orders to have reverence shown first to the Catholic Church and then to your laws. So that with God as your patron, you may triumph while you provide for the peace and the tranquility of the churches. Ambrose, in this letter, presents a definite order. God's law and then the emperor's law. The emperor's law is to be subservient to God's law. And Ambrose anticipates that their law will be used in order to, quote, provide for the peace and tranquility of the churches, by which he means heresy ought to be punished by the civil authorities. This represents a huge shift in the understanding of the relationship between church and state, and the blurring of that distinction between the temporal kingdom of men and the eternal kingdom of of God. Well, this tension between church and state would become extremely tense over the next decade. In order to understand why, we need to introduce one more character 
into the mix, the Empress Justina. Justina had been the second wife of Valentinian I, and thus the mother of Valentinian II, and the stepmother of Gratian. And because the boys were both relatively young, there's been some speculation that Justina was the one behind the scenes calling the shots. And this became all the more apparent after the older son, Gratian, dies in 383. To make matters more complicated, Justina was a committed Arian. Needless to say, she and Ambrose did not get along. In his letters, Ambrose likens her to Jezebel, Herodias, and Job's wife. Not, not the nicest thing to say about the emperor's mother. By this time, the imperial family in the West mainly resided in Ambrose, Milan. So in the year 385, Justina gets the idea in her head that the Arians deserved to have a church all their own, a place where they could gather and worship. And, she reasoned, since there were four basilicas in Milan, that at least one could be spared for that purpose. Now, table that for a minute. We've got to talk about what is a basilica. We've all probably heard the term basilica, and that, that term means something different today than it would have back then. Uh, but what is a basilica? Well, think with me. Uh, before Constantine, where did churches meet? In houses, right? Uh, we, we, we find this pattern in the book of Acts, right? Lydia, uh, right? She has a church that gathers in her house. Uh, of course, uh, Christianity is outlawed, right? It's an illegal religion. So you don't have a whole lot of buildings that are set aside just dedicated as churches. The churches would gather together in people's homes. Uh, now, with the legalization of Christianity... And with the imperial family and consequently upper-class Romans endorsing Christianity, people are flocking to these house churches. And this old house church model is no longer sufficient to accommodate all the people that are now coming to church. So we start seeing large church buildings, many of them being funded in part by imperial money, being built. Uh, so a basilica is a type of church with a, a unique architecture. We don't need to get into the, the details of what all that means, uh, but just know that a basilica is a type of church uh, set aside specifically for uh, church activities. So a request comes through Valentinian that one of the basilicas, there were four in Milan, that one of them be given over to the emperor. Ambrose recalls the events. He says, first, the military authorities, imperial counts, came with their command to hand over the basilica and also to see to it that the people caused no disturbance. I answered, as was proper, that a bishop could not hand over the temple of God. Ambrose said, you're the emperor of Rome. If you want my personal property, if you want my money, 
If you want my life, here they are. Come and take it. I offer it to you freely. But I cannot give you what rightly belongs to God alone. Well, the situation escalated when, in response, while Ambrose was leading worship on the Lord's Day, word came that imperial officers had entered one of the basilicas and had begun hanging um, imperial banners around the building, marking it off uh, as royal property. Well, this led to a Christian mob gathering. Uh, They happened to come across uh, an Aryan presbyter that they captured um, to do God knows what with him. Uh, Ambrose sent a delegation out to rescue the man so that he wasn't harmed. (coughs) Excuse me. But the emperor imposed fines on the crowd and those who had participated. So things are growing really tense in Milan. At last, armed guards are dispatched to Ambrose to take the basilica by force. This was Ambrose's response, direct to the emperor. It is not lawful for me to hand it over, nor is it expedient for you, O emperor, to receive it. If you cannot rightly violate the house of a private individual, do you think that the house of God can be appropriated? It is alleged that all things are permitted the emperor, that everything is his. To this I reply, do not burden yourself with thinking that you have imperial power over things which are divine. Do not exalt yourself, but if you wish to be emperor for a long time, be subject to God. Scripture says what things are God's to God. What are Caesar's to Caesar? Palaces to the emperor, churches to the bishop. You have been given authority over public edifices, not over sacred ones. Well, by the end of the week, the emperor had backed down and the crisis was averted. Well, there are aspects of this conflict that I think we can resonate with, right? Coming off of 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 a pandemic, when the state comes in and tries to tell us where and when we can meet, Uh, As a church, what we can do when we gather together, six feet apart, wear masks, no singing, I think we should rightly respond in Ambrosian fashion and tell the government, this isn't your house. You have no right to dictate what goes on here. Um, But Ambrose not only had to contend with heretics, but also with the traditional Roman pagans. Uh, By this time, paganism is in steep decline, but there are still many pagan holdouts and pagan customs that are so ingrained in Roman culture that still, even after the Constantinian Revolution, uh, they still persist. One vestige of paganism that became a source of debate in Ambrose's day had to do with an altar to the goddess Victory. The altar had been placed in the chamber of the Roman Senate by Octavian, who would later be called Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, 
After his victory over Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium in 29 BC. And since then, uh, one historian explains it, at this altar of victory, senators burned incense, offered prayers annually for the welfare of the empire, took their oaths and pledged on the ascension of each new emperor. Thus, the statue became one of the most vital links between the Roman state and Roman religion, and also a tangible reminder of Rome's great past and her hopes for the future. Well, after Constantine converted, the altar's days are numbered. Um, Constantius, his son, ordered its removal in 357. However, not long after, Julian, who we call the apostate, in uh, his attempts at a pagan renaissance, he has the statue restored. And there it stayed until Gratian, the older half-brother of Valentinian II, removed it once and for all in the year 382. So by this time, most of Rome's senators were Christian. At least in name, they had been baptized and joined to the church in Rome. But a small pagan holdout longed for the altar's restoration. In 384, these senators expressed that desire by way of a petition to Emperor Valentinian, written by the prefect of Rome, a man named Quintus, Quintus Aurelius Symmachus. Well, in this letter, uh, Symmachus made a passionate plea for tradition and toleration, now, a kindness, by the way, that the pagans were all too happy now to embrace uh, since they could no longer persecute the Christians. Well, after all, Christianity, paganism, what's the difference? He says it is equitable, this is the Roman prefect, the, the pagan guy, it is equitable that whatever all worship be considered one. We gaze upon the same stars, the sky is common to all, the same world envelopes us. What difference does it make by what judgment a person searches out the truth? So great a mystery cannot be arrived at by one path. Kind of sounds like something you might hear from uh, our own Senate uh, today in America. But he says, each person has his own customs, each person his own religious observance. The divine mind has distributed various forms of worship to different cities as their protection. For Rome, this means the worship and veneration of the traditional Roman gods. Uh, Rome has been around for a thousand years because of the blessing of the gods, they reasoned. Uh, because their worship has been maintained. If we neglect the gods, the gods are going to neglect us, and Rome will come to ruin. He concludes, we petition for that religious situation which preserved the empire for the divine father of your highness and which furnished legitimate heirs to that fortunate prince. Well, Ambrose hears of this, and of course he can't stay quiet. While all the people who are under Roman rule do battle on behalf of you, O emperors and princes of the earth, you yourselves do battle on behalf of Almighty God and the sacred faith. Now what does God expect of a Christian emperor? 
Well, he should at least not display any sympathy for idol worship and for the impious cults and their ceremonies, Ambrose writes. This small request for the pagans has endangered the whole Christian membership of the Senate. Ambrose paints a picture for Valentinian. Imagine we had a pagan emperor, God forbid, and he erected a pagan altar and was making Christians gather in order to be among those sacrificing so that the ashes of the altar, the smoke of the embers, were filling the nostrils and the mouths of the faithful. And suppose that the emperor had decreed that all of its members were bound by oath to the pagan gods, that it was the gods who made their legislation valid. After all, that's what the the altar of victory signified. In such circumstances, Ambrose writes, a Christian who was obliged to come to the Senate, which is frequently the case, for they are even obliged under violence to assemble, would consider it a persecution. A Christian would rather die a martyr's death than swear by a pagan altar. But we don't have a pagan emperor. The emperor is Christian. Ambrose asks him, Is it worthy then of your times, which are Christian times, that the dignity of Christian senators should be jeopardized so that the fruits of an impious decision may be offered to pagan senators? He tells the young emperor to remember the legacy of his father and his brother, and he goes so far as to threaten him with excommunication. If he gives in to the pagans' demands, he writes, we bishops will be unable to endure it with indifference or to let the matter pass unnoticed. You may well come to church, but there you shall find, uh, neither, uh, find either no bishop or one who resists you. Well, this threatened censure was enough to sway Valentinian's opinion on the matter. The altar uh, to victory remained uh, uh, outside of the Senate house. But another emperor, Theodosius, would find himself under the bishop's condemnation. So we began our time by describing the Thessalonian massacre, Ambrose's confrontation with the emperor, Well, what came of it? At first, Theodosius is shocked. The audacity of a bishop forbidding an emperor to enter a building in his own realm? He tried appealing to the example of King David. He was an adulterer and a murderer. God received him. Ambrose responds, if you have followed him in his sin." then follow in his repentance. It's difficult to piece together the exact circumstances that followed. It's possible that Theodosius went away that day unmoved. We do have a letter uh, written uh, by uh, Ambrose to the emperor, urging him to repent. Eventually, Theodosius engaged in a form of public penance. He went about without his imperial robes as a sign of his humiliation. Finally, at Christmas, 
Theodosius is restored to the fellowship of the church and welcomed back to the table. The bishop had humbled the emperor. What is God's is God's. What is Caesar's is Caesar's. But Caesar himself belongs to God. This had always been the case. But now Caesar knows it in a way that cannot be doubted. Things are changing. Christianity has gone from an illegal, persecuted religion to a legal religion favored by the imperial family to the official religion of the empire by law. In February of 391, not long after Theodosius' restoration, the emperors together issue one of the most oppressive laws against paganism. It forbade sacrifice, even approaching a pagan altar, like the altar to the goddess of victory, was punishable by a hefty fine. It's hard to believe that Ambrose didn't have any influence over the passing of such laws. Ambrose would live for a while longer, but he would enter his heavenly rest on April 4th, 397. Today, Ambrose is largely remembered, especially by secularists, vilified for his blurring of the lines between church and state. And I think as, as Christians, as we look back on his legacy, there's much to be debated there. In due course, it would come to be understood that the king of a country ruled according to the pleasure of the bishop, especially in the West, the bishop of Rome. No longer was the bishop to be uh, thought of as a humble servant of God, just preaching the word and administering the sacraments. The bishop was a kingmaker. Well, this would often lead to conflicts between the civil and religious authorities, conflicts that I'm sure we'll encounter as we press on in our study of church history. So Ambrose is most known for the struggles against uh, and with the Roman state. Uh, he was a theologian in his own right. He wrote especially on the duties of the clergy. He was an innovator when it came to congregational singing, we have some of his hymns still preserved. But perhaps the one thing that Ambrose is best known for has very little to do with Ambrose himself. As the Bishop of Milan, uh, where the imperial family lived, he gets to rub shoulders with a lot of higher-ups and public officials. It's possible that he didn't even notice when uh, one day the imperial rhetorician uh, sneaks in the back of the church, sits down, and starts listening to Ambrose's sermons. The imperial rhetorician was responsible for overseeing uh, the royal family's education in rhetoric, right? the art of speaking well and persuasion, uh, an area that's not really emphasized in today's education, but back then it was one of the pillars of, uh, of public education. Well, they became good friends. He writes, The man of God received me as a father would and welcomed, welcomed me coming as a good bishop should. Eventually, the man was converted. On Easter Sunday in 387, Ambrose baptized Aurelius Augustine. 
And we know Augustine would go on to become one of the most influential theologians in church history after the time of the apostles. So you might be thinking this is a good, uh, a good segue into studying uh, Augustine, and you would be right, but we're not. Um, the, uh, uh, Pastor Kyle made the mistake a while ago uh, when this whole thing started of telling me that I could take as long as I want to go through church history, and I mean, maybe he underestimated, but I, I can talk about church history for a while. Um, so uh, next month, what we're going to do, before we dive into Augustine, uh, we're going to talk about St. Patrick. Um, not only are we celebrating, I say we, uh, as a nation, as whatever, St. Patrick's Day is next month, um, comes around every year, uh, but it also lines up very well with where we are chronologically in church history. Uh, Patrick was born uh, sometime during the ministry of Ambrose, um, so it's a good time to stop and to consider the life of uh, St. Patrick providentially. However, um, I would like to make a note that um, in two months' time then, the plan is to start talking about, um, about Augustine. Um, I sent a text to, uh, to Kyle asking him if, if four months covering Augustine was, was too much. Um, he thought I was joking. I wasn't. Um, we probably won't do four months of Augustine, maybe three. Um, but what we're going to be doing is, at first, what, we're, we're, what we want to do is we want to look at Augustine's Confessions. It's, um, if you've never read the Confessions, it's uh, one of the great classics of Christian literature. It, since the day it was written, it has continued to be published. You can go to Barnes & Noble today, I'm sure, and buy it off the shelf. It's still there. It's still being published. Um, you can find it online. Um, for free. You can buy it on Amazon for pennies. Uh, there are audiobooks available through probably YouTube and, and Hoopla if you have access to Hoopla. So I'm encouraging you, if you have not read Augustine's Confessions, uh, now's a good time to start. We've got two months uh, to get through it. Um, the Confessions are sort of like a spiritual autobiography that take you through uh, from the time of Augustine's birth to just after his conversion. So that's what we'll be looking at in two months' time. Just want to make you guys aware so that you can be um, preparing for that and maybe get a copy of Augustine's Confessions. All right. Well, do we have any questions about Ambrose? Any thoughts, comments about the relationship between the church and the empire? If I can't answer your questions, hopefully uh, some of the brothers here might be able, who've thought more deeply about these things, can help us out. Well, as uh, Brother Aaron comes forward uh, to lead us in our closing hymn, uh, let me close us in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your blessing upon us this afternoon, for this, uh, this day to be able to gather, Lord, to uh, worship you and to praise you, and to consider, Lord, uh, the great saints who have gone before us, um, even in their errors, Lord. Um, your grace and your mercy shine forth, and we are reminded that though we are weak and sinful men and women, every one of us, Lord, 
yet we serve a great and an awesome God who can, um, who can even make a donkey to speak. And Lord, we, we trust that you could use uh, even us, Lord, to the, the praise of your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray, Father, that as we, we go off in our separate ways, that you would bless us, um, see us back here next Lord's Day, that we might gather again to worship you and to praise you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.